It's Thursday, February 11th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. The central question of Trump's second impeachment trial is, did he incite rioters to storm the Capitol? To explore that, we can look at the over 200 people that have been arrested and charged so far in the siege. Mostly everyone there was a Trump supporter, some of which did say Trump inspired their actions. Others have been tied to far-right extremist groups, some had ties to law enforcement and the military, and some were charged with conspiracy. Tom Dreisbach, investigative correspondent at NPR, joins us for those arrested so far and their stories. Next, amid some early stumbles and lack of doses hampering the rollout of vaccines, we're also seeing hesitancy and skepticism by many healthcare workers who are refusing their doses. Many cite the speed at which they were developed, and for others, it's a trust problem distrust of the government and even the healthcare systems they work for. Dhruv Kular, practicing physician and contributor to The New Yorker, joins us for why so many healthcare workers are resisting the COVID vaccine. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. I thought I was following my president. He asked us to fly there. He asked us to be there. So I was doing what he asked us to do. So as far as in my heart of hearts, do I feel like a criminal? No, I'm not the villain. Joining us now is Tom Dreisbach, investigative correspondent at NPR. Thanks for joining us, Tom. Thanks for having me. The government now has identified more than 200 suspects in the Capitol Hill riots from January 6th. Um, they've charged a, a lot of them, and uh, we're kind of starting to uh, see a picture uh, of who the people were that showed up that day. Overwhelmingly, they are mostly Trump supporters, but we're also seeing that a number of them have made statements saying that Trump did inspire them to go out there and storm the Capitol. We're seeing connections to far-right extremist groups like the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers. We're seeing a lot of military and law enforcement out there and obviously people that supported conspiracy theories like QAnon. So, Tom, uh, I know there at NPR, you guys compiled basically the entire list and looking through everybody. What are we seeing with these people? When we started this project, we were thinking about how every day, it seems, we're getting new charges brought by the Justice Department against people who are alleged to have taken part in the rioting and the insurrection at the Capitol. And so what we wanted to know was, are there any commonalities in this group? And honestly, looking at the more than 200 criminal cases that have been filed, it can be hard to find some trends. I mean, there are people who are alleged to have committed conspiracy, which is a very serious charge and that they allegedly planned the attack on the Capitol for months, beginning as far back as days after the November election. And then there's people who allegedly just sort of were in the crowd and got caught up in the moment. What unites all of them really is their support for Donald Trump. And in general, this idea that they bought into the idea that the election was stolen from Trump and that there was widespread fraud. And really, there's no evidence that either of those things are true. You had a small portion of one of the articles I was reading from you guys. To really generalize the entire group is very difficult. There was people from the Latin Kings that joined the mob. There was two Virginia police officers. There was a rabbi that joined the mob, two-time Olympic gold medalist, which we heard a lot about. You know, there were so many people in there, but definitely there were commonalities within it. You mentioned conspiracy. So this is one of the most serious charges that people can face in this. How many people were charged with this? And I mean, these are just the people that were caught and being charged. You know, obviously, if they were organizing, there might be a lot more people involved in it. But talk about the ones that we know, at least. 
There's around a dozen people so far who have been charged with conspiracy, and the charges relate to a, a handful of cases. In one of those cases, the government alleges that a group of people associated with the Oath Keepers, and if people aren't familiar um, with them, they're an extremist far-right organization that grew up about a decade ago. They specifically target for recruitment people who are in the military or who are veterans or law enforcement. And the government has alleged that people in that group planned this attack on the Capitol going back for a while now. The government has also alleged that members of the Proud Boys group, this far-right, often violent and uh, hateful gang, they also engaged in conspiracy. And in one of the court documents, there's also an allegation that one of the Proud Boys said that he was going to kill Mike Pence if they had the opportunity. So these are some very serious allegations in these court papers relating to conspiracy. And those are some of the most serious charges that people in this large group of more than 200 now face. And you mentioned, you know, the Oath Keepers and how they try to recruit military and law enforcement. That's one of the things that officials and lawmakers are really concerned with is kind of the extremism crop coming up through these channels. That's one of the things they're looking into as well. There were a striking number of military veterans in this group. Around 15% had law enforcement or military ties by our count so far. And, and I should say that we continue to add to this database as more charges are unveiled by the federal government. And in the U.S., there's about 7% of the adult population are veterans. So it seems to be an overrepresented group in the defendants related to the Capitol and Experts on extremism say there's not a lot of evidence that veterans necessarily are more susceptible to extremist ideology. But the Defense Department does say that extremism in its ranks is a major issue that they're working to combat. The new Secretary of Defense, Lloyd Austin, says this is a top priority for him and the Biden administration. And there was a, actually a poll by the Military Times, the military publication, that about a third of active duty service members say that they had witnessed personally racist activity or white nationalist activity, like people with swastika tattoos, that kind of thing. And so clearly it's an issue that the military is actively dealing with. And there might be clues to the extent of that problem in these court papers related to the Capitol riot. Are there any other stories of people that stand out to you? Because, you know, as we mentioned at the beginning, a lot of people did say, well, we were following the president. He told us to come out here. You know, they believe all this stuff going on. Any other stories that stick out to you? To one extent, I think in the immediate aftermath of the attack on the Capitol, a lot of the images that we saw were a little bit misleading. We saw a lot of footage from the rotunda of people sort of milling about. It didn't seem that violent. But as these charges have been unveiled, we have received word and evidence of really pretty intense violence that was brought on by these rioters. I mean, there's allegations against one man who is a military veteran who allegedly brought a hockey stick and beat members of the Capitol Police with that hockey stick repeatedly. Um, there's allegations of, against several other people that came armed with bulletproof vests or bear spray, like a, which is an irritant spray, and that they use that against the Capitol Police. And then there are other people who appear to have just been along for the chaos of it, the allegations against one man that I read today, that he went in and found a bottle of wine inside the Capitol building, which he then chugged. He then took a book of Senate procedure and then allegedly sold it to a person for $40. Oh, wow. And so the charges really run the gamut. It really describes a picture of absolute chaos and some extreme violence inside the Capitol. And, you know, we're watching a lot of the video, which you just described right now about the guy stealing the book and trying to sell that. 
that was one of the most curious things to me because I was seeing people on the floor of the Senate, I believe it was, and they were rifling through desks and looking for documents and taking mm-hmm. pictures. And that was the most curious thing to me is like, who knows what a senator might have left behind when they got evacuated and all, but it could have been sensitive information. You know, that was one of the things that really stood out to me. And the federal government, the Justice Department has pointed that out, that people were looking at potentially very sensitive information. One woman allegedly took a laptop from Nancy Pelosi's office. Now, there's word that it was just used for presentations, that it wasn't necessarily super sensitive national security information. But obviously, when you have an unanticipated breach of the U.S. Congress, there is a lot of material that is could be extremely sensitive lying around. And I think we're still really only starting to piece together how damaging that attack may have been on a number of levels. Are we seeing that a lot of people are expressing regret for their actions on that day? One of the people that I saw a lot of coverage on was a woman named Jennifer Ryan. She was a realtor from Texas. She went out there. She said she believed she was following the president's orders to go out there. But she has this whole story of like, you know, I went out there with some friends. I didn't expect all this stuff to happen. But she, you know, at the same time posted pictures of herself to Facebook I mean, really documenting herself doing the actions. But she said she feels really bad. She feels duped by the whole thing. I think she even asked for a pardon from President Trump. Obviously, she didn't get one. And this is kind of the sense that we're getting from her. You know, she's just completely remorseful. But are other people in this realm as well? It really runs the gamut so far. I mean, the sense you get from the court papers is that the people who went inside the Capitol, in many cases, seemed to expect no consequences for their actions in the moment. I mean, people were posting on Facebook, on Instagram, they were live streaming as they were, and now, as the Justice Department alleges, committing federal crimes. They were creating the evidence that would later be used against them in court and possibly bring some very serious prison time in some cases. And in the days afterward, I think people's reactions have really varied. I mean, in some cases, we don't know whether someone has expressed regret or not because they're currently in jail awaiting charges because the government thinks they're either a flight risk or they're a risk for continuing to commit crimes. In other cases, you know, we have heard people say, I really regretted this. In a couple cases, people thought that President Trump was really behind them. And as you mentioned, Jenna Ryan said she was hoping for a pardon from Trump. That did not happen. So I think we're starting to get a a really wide variety of reactions as people realize the gravity of what happened at the Capitol and the serious prison time in some cases that they might face. Some people said they expected President Trump to be marching with them to the Capitol building. That's how that's how deep in they were. The last question I have is we're going through the impeachment trial right now. Uh, A lot of them are pointing to these all these instances and these people's words in that trial. But as far as these defendants, you know, using the defense that, well, we were following the president's orders, what have legal experts said about how effective that might be of a defense? Well, it's a potentially very risky legal strategy for these defendants. I mean, some defense attorneys have said they're going to use this. One defense attorney apparently went as far as to say that their client was brainwashed by Trump into committing these acts. But it's not a position that a defense attorney wants to be in because to use this defense that, you know, Trump egged people on to do this, you're already essentially admitting that my client did these acts and I'm trying to bring up mitigating circumstances. 
So that's not a position that any defense attorney wants to be in. But in many cases, as we mentioned, there's people who were filming themselves inside the Capitol and creating a ton of evidence on top of the surveillance footage and officer, uh, police officer body cam footage that's out there. So there is a mountain of evidence out there against some people. So they're looking for any mitigating circumstances they can find to try and use as a defense. Tom Dreisbach, investigative correspondent at NPR. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Vaccines can take years, if not decades, to make. And here we have one, kind of a medical miracle, which came out in less than one year. But that also creates a level of hesitancy among the general public, but also among healthcare workers. Joining us now is Dhruv Kular, practicing physician, assistant professor at Weill Cornell Medical College, and contributing writer to The New Yorker. Thanks for joining us, Dhruv. Thanks so much for having me. I wanted to talk about the vaccine rollout and what's going on. We're seeing a lot of skepticism of the vaccine. There are a lot of people that are getting it. Obviously, we see the lines. We see people inundating the websites to make their appointments. But there's also a lot of skepticism and hesitancy on the part of medical workers specifically. It's an interesting thing. You know, they work in the field. You would think they'd be more willing for it. You wrote a kind of an article about looking into a lot of a CNAs that were working maybe in the uh, in senior living facilities and a lot of skepticism and hesitancy that they had. So, Drew, tell us a little bit about what you're seeing. You know, the reason I wanted to write this article is because I also found it quite surprising that healthcare workers had reasonably high levels of vaccine hesitancy, despite seeing the damage of COVID-19 firsthand, despite being at higher risk for infection and passing it on to their loved ones. And so I wanted to explore what was behind this vaccine hesitancy. And I think one thing that you'll notice is that and particularly in nursing homes, it has to do with a lack of trust in often your employer, a lack of trust in the healthcare system, and a lack of trust in the political and the regulatory environment under which these vaccines were created. We know that they are safe and effective, and medical science has taught us that, and they were developed at record speed. But I think that also creates its own issues that people have been told over the course of the last year that vaccines can take years, if not decades to make. And here we have one kind of a medical miracle, which came out in less than one year. But that also creates a level of hesitancy among the general public, but also among healthcare workers. And a lot of the nurses that you spoke to, a lot of them said the speed was a big factor. And uh, they just said, hey, there's no way I'm going to wait to see long term results, see how other people react once they get it. And, and, you know, it's an interesting thing. Obviously, we've been learning about the pandemic and vaccine making, I think, <laughs> like in no other time before, you know, happening in real time. And the thing with the vaccine, especially like the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines, these mRNA platforms, you know, that platform for that vaccine was already there. They just needed that opportunity to be able to tweak something so they can make it for the coronavirus for COVID-19. So that I, I do understand that kind of the speed can be scary about it, but that platform was something that has been worked on for a long time already. It is something that has been worked on for years. It's an incredible new technology. But I think this really gets at the heart of the issue is that it's not always the case that telling people about the science and how things were developed is enough to get them over their kind of desire to watch and wait and see what happens with the vaccines and others. 
often it's a case of misinformation. A lot of people are getting their information from sources that may not be reliable. It can be an issue of just wanting to see how other people do before they are kind of taking this into their own body. And it can be an issue really of, of trust and understanding that the healthcare system or other kind of parties have not treated them in a way that they've wanted to be treated in the past. And they're understandably skeptical that this seems to be uh, being forced on them now. That being said, this is, a, this is an issue and that we really need to kind of combat it head on. We need to have these conversations. We need to engage in these dialogues. And we do need to help people understand that this is the best thing for themselves as well as their communities. Tell me a little bit more about the setting of the senior living facilities, these nursing homes, and these certified nursing assistants that we find a lot of them you know, working in these in these settings. You know, nursing home residents, it does seem that there are high levels of vaccine acceptance for them, for their part at least, but the nurses were not seeing it so much. And then yourself as a practicing physician, do you see this in other hospital settings or do you find it more relegated to these nursing home facilities? You know, one thing that's important to note is we often talk about healthcare workers as a large group, but of course, there are different professions within healthcare, there are different settings within healthcare. And so, one thing that seems to be the case, at least early on, that nursing home staff have higher levels of vaccine hesitancy compared to uh, hospital staff, for instance, and that nurses and doctors seem to accept the vaccine at higher rates than other healthcare workers. So, there are many healthcare workers, some you've talked about, certified nursing assistants, licensed practical nurses, people who work in cleaning services or environmental services, patient transport. And we see that vaccine hesitancy, at least early on, seems to track with level of education. So that's one marker. But it also seems to track, as I mentioned, with other non-hospital facilities like nursing homes and long-term care facilities. You know, one thing to note is that these are really challenging places to work for a lot of people. A lot of nursing home staff have felt during the pandemic, but also before the pandemic, that they haven't gotten a lot of respect. They haven't always gotten the PPE that they need. They have worked for relatively low wages. And so these kinds of issues are very much wrapped up into how they feel at this moment when they're being asked or told in some cases to take the vaccine. Yeah, as you mentioned at the onset, I, I, it does really seem to be this lack of trust problem. The polarization, the politicization of the vaccines does also seem to come into play a lot. You know, a lot of people said they don't trust either political party and how they positioned all of it, the trust in government. You know, it's unfortunate to hear that stuff because we want our healthcare workers to kind of be leading on this setting. But if you're not comfortable with it, obviously you're not going to want to go forward with that. So it's just an interesting look to see how it's shaken out and as I mentioned, there is no lack of people wanting the vaccine still. We see that in the numbers. So, you know, we'll see how the rollout continues, really. I do think that vaccine acceptance will rise in the general public as well as among healthcare workers. A lot of the people that I've talked to have been saying, I don't want it right now. I don't want to be one of the first people that gets it because I'm not entirely sure about this vaccine. But if my friends, if my colleagues, if my family members, they seem to be doing okay, then I think I would go ahead and get it. And so this is entirely possible that it's really an issue kind of up front. And my hope is that as people see that these vaccines are safe and effective, which they are, that vaccine uptake will really continue to increase among the entire U.S. population as we go forward. Dhruv Kular, practicing physician, assistant professor at Weill Cornell Medical College and contributor to The New Yorker. Thank you very much for joining us. 
my pleasure. Thanks a lot. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. This episode of The Daily Diver is produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.